Remain standing, if you would, and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 8. Genesis 8 and verse 20. Genesis 8, 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green pl- and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember, every, my, remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, we come first and thank you for it. We thank you that it doesn't wither and fade away, but that it is effective and powerful, and that it works and does all of your purposes. And so we pray to that end today, that you would take your word and use it to accomplish your purposes in our hearts and minds. Show your power to us today, Lord, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you have uh, probably seen um, the, the videos from astronauts returning to Earth. I think it was Apollo 13, or maybe this was just in the movie, where after a harrowing mission, they come back and they, they kiss the ground. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. I remember one, uh, it was the summer of 1998. I remember it because it was right before Leslie and I got married. 
I was traveling to Moldova, and we were flying from London to uh, Romania. And we encountered what the pilot called, and Sonny, you can tell me later if this is accurate or not, called it clear air turbulence. This was a beautiful day, sun was shining, skies were blue, but as we crossed over the Alps, the, the, the plane suddenly lost altitude. And when I say suddenly, it fell. And when it bottomed out, the overhead bins opened and bags fell out. Of course, people screamed. I was sitting in the back of the plane, and some of the ceiling panels fell off. Uh, it looked like the plane was coming apart. And although it only last, lasted a few seconds, it felt like it lasted a lot longer. Eventually, straightened out, and everything was fine. And pilot came on, and I think he probably chuckled, as pilots do, because they're familiar with all that's going on. Uh, I remember wanting to kiss the ground when I got off of that airplane because we had survived. Well, Noah's coming out of the ark, and I kind of wonder if Noah wanted to kiss the ground. Um, You know, there had not only been the fear uh, of the storm and the, the rains that lasted, the swells as they rode in this boat, but then there was just the length of time that they were in there, waiting, 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 waiting to come out. And it If Noah didn't kiss the ground, then certainly his first priority would have been um, food, shelter, you know, provision, right? We've got to take care. We're coming out of the ark. We've got fresh water. What are we going to do? Uh, How are we going to take care of everything? But this isn't what happened. Noah's first response, as recorded in Scripture, is to worship God. I mean, if anyone ever had an excuse to skip worship because his plate was full... This, this was the case right here, okay? This should put all of our excuses to shame when we think that we're too busy to come to worship. Noah had a full plate, and yet he worshiped God. He stopped to thank God for his salvation. Worship for us can easily become a routine. It can almost come like a duty, like something that we have to do. And when this happens, worship stops becoming worship. Because worship is fundamentally a matter of the heart. It's a matter of our our thoughts and our affections, our priorities. I don't mean by this that worship is simply an emotion. Worship involves our emotions, but it also involves our thoughts, and I would argue it always starts with our thoughts. Our thoughts lead our emotions. It's why we sing hymns that are rich, we, we, you know, you can sing songs that will get you emotionally worked up. Music has that power. That's true secularly as well as spiritually, right? You can, I mean, music has this effect. You've gone to whoever your favorite artist is, the concert, the memories come flooding back as you remember the song from years gone by and emotions come up. You can have an emotional experience with music. And I'm, we don't want to throw our emotions out. But we want to recognize that our emotions need to follow our thoughts because worship is a heart matter. If we come to a worship service and we stand and sit and we're stoic and we're cold and we're indifferent, we can hardly imagine that we've worshipped. We've just attended a service. But a worship service is designed to lead us to God. It's designed to take us somewhere, to do something with us. There is thought and order that is given to our worship service. We have a call to worship. It's God's call to us to worship, but we are called together corporately to worship. 
We profess our beliefs. We sing a song of praise. We confess our sins. We hear words of assurance reminding us of God's great forgiveness. And on and on we work our way through that order of worship. And it's designed for us to see Christ in all His beauty. It's to lead our hearts. And I speak here metaphorically. You know, when you, when you breathe in and out, you're oxygenating blood and you're trying to get that oxygenated blood throughout your system. And as we come to worship, it's designed to, you know, metaphorically uh, through, the, through the work of the Spirit to, to get that oxygenated blood, so to speak, working through all of our bodies. That's what worship does. You see, God uses worship in our lives. It's not something that we just simply do for Him, like all other religions. God uses it to change us, to equip us, to strengthen us all for His glory. Well, you may wonder, what about when I don't feel it? We've all had those Sundays. We come, but we're just not there. We don't feel it. We're struggling. We're distracted. We're weighted down by our own things. We're thinking about our needs or maybe the needs of someone else. Just the concerns and cares of living in this world, we come and we feel weighted down and distracted. Maybe we're broken over our own sin or broken over the sins of others, and we just don't feel it. This is not the time to abandon corporate worship. It is just the opposite. It is the time to come, to engage, because God uses worship in our lives. He doesn't just receive it. He takes it. He makes it effective in our lives, and He makes it effective in our lives as well. And so when you don't feel it, come and let your thoughts and your attention be captured in the order of our worship and watch God work through it. One of the aspects of our worship, and this is true privately as well as corporately, is thanksgiving. It's always there. We're always, that's, it just comes up. Even, even if it weren't planned, it would come out in our, our spontaneous prayers, right? We're just, we're, 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 thought, we're, we're thinking of all of the ways for which we have to be thankful to God for how He works in our life. And this was clearly a motivating force in Noah's uh, mind as he comes off the ark. I mean, he realizes what he has just endured. We read the story and we have this very succinct uh, you know, uh, version of what happened. He experienced it. So he was thankful in a way that we can't even imagine for having come not only through the storm, but also through the waiting. I imagine as he came out, you know, that he, he, he may have looked around and it just kind of hits him. You know, as, he, as he's doing what he needs to do, you know, after he worships or maybe even as he's preparing, as he thinks of all that God has done in saving him as he thinks of God's provision, you know, just amazed that he had the forethought that God brought the animals into the ark. Noah, eh, this was a good idea. <laughs> now we've got food. He doesn't know maybe what's coming that he's going to get to eat them, uh, but we've at least got sacrifices. He, he, he might have thought, you know, God is so wise in providing. He looks and sees the newly sprouting plants and thinks, you know, renewals come. You know, we're going to see this again and again, harvest over and over Maybe at the end of the day, the sun sets, and like we often do when you look out at a sunset, you just, you're thankful because it's beautiful. There's really no other reason. It's just because of its beauty that you're thankful. I've mentioned this song before, Andrew Peterson. It's called, Don't You Want to Thank Someone for This? I don't think I've read these lyrics or any of the lyrics, but I've mentioned it 
It's this idea that we can all resonate with. Uh, Listen to the words. Don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right and beauty abounds? Because sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls and the baby sighs and the rain comes down. And when you see the spring has come and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? So even in the brokenness and the fallenness of our world, God's mercy still shines forward. It still shines in such a way that it draws our hearts in thanksgiving. If you've ever stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon or someplace like it, you know what I'm talking about. You just want to praise something for that that you're taking in. It's God's call to us. Now, Noah knew that his sin remained. He knew that sin remained in the world, that it was still a problem. Because he was there, right? (laughs) Everywhere you go, there you are. You're bringing it with you. And God points this out. Look in verse 21. He says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In spite of sin, and all the sin that would, 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 would come, I mean, this was just the beginning, God promises that there would be a common grace given to all mankind, even to the animal kingdom. That's what's interesting about this covenant, is it's not just with man, it extends to the all, all flesh, all creatures. There would be seasons, plantings and harvests, sun and rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. And God is also promising mercy toward mankind because it will be through mankind that the Redeemer He promised would come. So here, this is the announcement. He's not making the covenant yet. Of course, God's outside of space and time, so the covenant's already there. But in terms of the progression of thought, uh, He's announcing the covenant. And, but He has some instruction to make to give to Noah first before He establishes the covenant. We see this anthropomorphic language of God uh, responding to the smell of the aroma. And we've talked about anthropomorphic language before. This is, we're not limiting God in this way, right? This is language that's used to help us understand God in the sense of be able to relate to Him. He uh, doesn't have a body like us. Uh, he doesn't respond as we do. And yet, somehow, in His sovereignty and in His power, He's affected by the worship. That's how He communicates it to us. And He responds that He will remember forever. And then he announces that here's the covenant. And note that the covenant is all God. It's all him. Um, He's not telling Noah what he will and won't do based on anything Noah does. He's simply saying, this is what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. We call this monergistic, right? It's God alone. It's not dependent on man's cooperation. There will simply be seed time, and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, and these will not cease because God has promised to make it so. But then God does give some instruction. And it's not that the instruction is given because it's, anything's going to be dependent on uh, keeping these commands, but rather that man can know how to live, that man can know how to flourish. 
you know, we often turn instruction as uh, like limiting us. But any of you who've raised kids know how beneficial instruction is. I mean, you know better than your children, and you know that there are certain things like a hot stove no matter how curious it is, that are going to harm the child. And so you instruct the child not to touch the hot stove, not because you're trying to, you know, come down on the kid or or limit the kid's freedom, but you know better than them. And so anytime God gives us instruction, it's never to limit our freedom, but it's actually to help us flourish. To live in obedience to Him is to live in freedom. There's three categories of instruction we see here. Producing life, protecting life, and sustaining life. And so first, let's look at producing life. It's a common phrase. We've seen it already in the creation account. Be fruitful and multiply. We see it twice here in verses 1 and 7. And this is a repeating theme, that this is what mankind is to do. The idea that's expressed here is found in Psalm 127.3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Children are a heritage and a reward, a gift to be treasured and protected. And this is true at conception and in the womb, and it's why we protect life from the very beginning. But it continues to be true after that. It's true in the younger years when you want a moment of quiet and they find you everywhere you go. It's true in the teenage years when you want them to move out and they still need you. It's true when they're grown and they're doing their own thing. And it's even true the day comes or the day when it comes that you need them. In all times, children are a heritage and a reward. Well, what about those who have never had children? Do they miss out on this reward? I don't think so. Not in the body of Christ, at least. Because in the body of Christ, we, and I hope that we do this, we celebrate and enjoy the lives of all of our kids. We, we, we look at opportunities we have to invest and pour in to them. We're committed to their protection, to their growth in Christ. And this means that we willingly serve in the nursery, that we're willing to wipe up a spilled drink or volunteer for cookies and catechism, or simply lay down our own preferences for a perfectly quiet service when a child makes a distraction. These are ways that we can appreciate the joy and the, and the, and the gift that children are. Life is something we can all value, appreciate, and celebrate. The second thing we see is to protect life in verses 2 and verses 4 to 6. And we've heard this already uh, when we dealt with Cain and Abel. But now we get the reason why. Life is unique. It is a gift from God. And this is true both in humans and in the animal world. We see that there is a respect for the animal world and the command not to eat the animal with its blood still in it. You know, science with all its advances still cannot produce life. Life is a gift from God. We don't kill animals just to kill. We don't torture. We teach our children to respect life. Uh, There was a documentary years ago I remember seeing that that tied a link between uh, serial killers and their adolescent years torturing animals, right? I mean, these are things we recognize that, you know, there's a problem here. This is not the way 
that we live. But beyond the respect for life itself, there is a special sacredness for human life. And the reason is given in verse 6, that God made man in his own image. And with this is given a consequence, capital punishment, not just for a human that takes another human life, but for a beast, an animal that takes another human life. And we would see that come later in the law where there was a provision for an animal that killed a human, that their life would be taken. The command for capital punishment would later be given in the law, and we even see this in Romans 13, to the civil authorities. In other words, we don't use this verse to seek out personal revenge. This is for the civil law. Now, capital punishment may seem contrary to the preservation of life. But understand this, God knows our sinful hearts. And so, in an effort to not only provide a consequence for taking someone else's life, but to act as a deterrent about being flippant toward human life, if you remember the evil that was present on the earth before the flood, we just got snapshots of it. Remember Lamech? I mean, he kills a guy just for hitting him, a young, a young, young man, a young kid for hitting him. He just got mad at him and killed him. This was the kind of flippancy that people showed toward human life. And so God is correcting that in a sense. He is putting down not only the law, but the consequence as well. And then third, to sustain life. This third category is here where we see for the first time God gives the animal world for us to eat. And as our tummies growl and we think of that roast in the crock pot at home, we can be especially appreciative of this today. Now, in verse 2, it speaks of uh, the animals fearing man. So something changed. I don't know that the world was Narnia-like, you know, where the animals, you know, talked and all, and there's no evidence of that. But in the sense of there's something changed where animals became fearful uh, after the flood. And then in verse 3, he says, I give you everything. He gives them all animals to eat. Now, later, the Jews would be given some restrictions in the, in the ceremonial law, certain animals that they couldn't eat. And later, when the, those laws, the civil and ceremonial laws, were fulfilled, then, as we saw in our study of Acts, now everything's open again. There was some protection. We don't know all of God's reasoning for doing that, uh, unless you've ever had food poisoning from shellfish. Uh, maybe that was part of, the, part of the protection in there of not being able to eat those. Uh, but now we have the, the whole world in the sense of the animal world available to us uh, for our diet. Now, there's nothing sinful about being a vegetarian. Um, I, all my humorous thoughts come through my head and I'm, <laughs> the filters are kicking in and I'm not going to say any of that. There's nothing sinful about being a vegetarian, but there's nothing sinful about eating meat either or eating cheese or eating an egg or whatever. This permission to sustain life is given for our good and for our benefit, but it isn't just about us. I think there's some implication here that not only should we take advantage of all that God has given us, but that we should ensure that others have food as well. And you see this throughout Scripture. When God gave the law to His people, He commanded them to care for the needy. You look at Deuteronomy 15.11, He says, Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This was a command given to think, not just of sustaining your own life, but that we as believers are committed to the sustaining of all lives 
and I would even argue committed to the flourishing of all lives. It doesn't mean we solve all the world's problems or that we bear all of the weight ourselves individually, but it means that we don't just go and live for ourselves, that we consider the needs of others. If you think of the number of times, if you've ever labored through the Old Testament prophets, you remember the number of times where God called out His people for ignoring the poor among them. They had created a religious system in a number of different ways. And in one account, in Isaiah 58, he, he chides them because they were fasting, but they were ignoring all the other commands that he had given them. And he said, you're fasting, what is it? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? I read the passage last week of Matthew 25 that looked forward to the day of judgment where the righteous by faith would be commended for such things as visiting the sick and feeding the hungry and giving a a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. And Jesus in Luke 3.11 says, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So our lives are lived in such a way that not only that we flourish, but that we are to live for the flourishing of others as well, that we're thinking of others. We don't share the gospel, then feed the hungry. And we don't feed the hungry, then share the gospel. It is a both and. We bring the gospel to the people while feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, nursing the sick, and helping the poor. It's a both and, not an either or. And then after these guidelines he gives them, then he establishes the covenant in verse 8. The covenant is with Noah and his offspring. That means all the way down to us. It's a perpetual covenant. God is preserving the the created order. And the covenant is also, as I mentioned, for every living creature. That is, for the animal world as well. The promise extends to them. They're not going to be wiped out either. Look in verse 11. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. There will be floods and natural disasters, but there will never be another global flood in which all life is wiped out. God will not do as he did in the day of Noah by sending waters to cover the earth in judgment. And then in verse 13, he gives the sign. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. We see the sign of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision. Here with Noah, it's the rainbow. In the new covenant, it's baptism and the Lord's Supper. God gives signs not because he needs them, but because we do. It, it helps us. It helps us to get a visible thing, to have a, uh, uh, something that we can see. And, and, and it, when we think of the Lord's Supper, something that we can touch and taste and that become instructive to us. And the rainbow is this, that every time, and we get, it, we get more than our fair chance to see them here in Florida, we get to see lots of rainbows, and they're to call our attention to the faithfulness of God. If you think about it, the bow is a weapon of war, and here God transforms it into a sign of peace. One commentator writes, stretched between heaven and earth, it is a bond of peace between both. And spanning the horizon, it it points to the embracing of the divine mercy. It points us, it points up to God away from us. 
You think of, of God when he created or established, rather, uh, we say he cut the covenant with Abraham. You remember that story where the animals were cut in half and the, the smoking torch and, uh, went, went through the middle? And God was, in essence, saying, let it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I ever break this covenant. So in the same way, God is saying, let me be mortally wounded by the arrow from this bow if my covenant is ever broken. God is willing to put His faithfulness. He's, that, that's what we're committed to. It's, we're not just hoping this is a good deal. We're not just betting on the fact that a lot of other people have taken you know, Christianity for a ride and we think it works for them. Our hope is in God who is faithful and trustworthy, and our confidence is in Him. So every time you see a rainbow, remember God is faithful. Psalm 9, verse 9 says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. He will never forsake you. Instead, the God who created all things, who established this covenant and each subsequent covenant did in fact himself take the mortal blow to keep the covenant. God came putting on flesh, came as a man in the the person of Jesus. He walked the earth and perfectly obeyed in our place. He did everything right. And Romans 3 says the wages of sin is death. Jesus was the only person who's ever lived who didn't deserve to die. And yet he did die. He died for you and for me. He took the mortal wound that you and I deserve and died in our place. He died so that you and I don't have to face the penalty we deserve. And so each time we see the rainbow, look at it and remember. See that it points away from you. And remember that you will live. And if God is willing to do this, the just to take the just punishment for your sin and my sin, will He not give us all good things? That's the promise. We read about it in, eight, in, in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So whatever you're facing today, whatever you're bearing, however you're hurting, needing, wanting, suffering, look up and see, if God is for you, who can be against you? Has He not forgiven your sins in Christ and cleansed you from all unrighteousness? Does He not know how to give you good gifts? Will He not finish what He started? Has He not promised to meet all your needs according to His riches and glory Hear the words of our Master and Savior and remember all of His covenant promises. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Heavenly Father, I pray that according to your riches and glory that you would grant us to be strengthened according to your power by your Spirit that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. Lord, do this work in us. 
You know what each of us faces, and yet we know that you never change, that you keep your promises. And as you have promised to preserve creation until all of your purposes are accomplished, we know that the sun will rise again tomorrow and that we can trust you in all of your promises here in this life. We do look forward to the day when you return, when all of this is, all of the wrongs are made right, when the world is changed and renewed. But Lord, in the meantime, we live here and now. And so I pray that we would be deeply rooted in the love of Christ, to know that you are with us, that you walk with us and care for us, that you meet our every need, and that you will truly finish the good work that you've started. Help us to know this and walk in this hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.